Well, take your Bible, if you will, and open it to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 15, where we return to our study of Jeremiah. Our very own shepherd, John Street, began his study on Psalm 9 and 10 this last Lord's Day on defending the oppressed with a reminder that God will judge those who harm his people. Today, we will be looking at God's judgment, but from a different perspective. Not a rebuke of the nations, but a rebuke of his own. What happens when God says, I am tired of relenting? What happens when God says, I will make my people perish? When God is patient, no more. Well, if you recall, we're studying the condemnation God makes to Judah through his servant, Jeremiah. And today we'll mark the fifth message into this book of Jeremiah. And if you recall this section, that's basically from chapter 2 through chapter 29 has a series of 14 messages for the treacherous people of Judah. And this morning, we endeavor to cover a portion of that fifth message, that fifth message that really began in chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 17, verse 18, the fifth message. And the title for today's message is Determined for Punishment, Part 2. As Doug made mention, part one was preached back in June of this last year. In chapter 14, we observe that some hard providence that Yahweh brings about to punish a people for their iniquities. God uses a drought to put his character on display. That Yahweh is a God of justice a God of judgment, a God of vengeance, of wrath, and punishment. And this, too, brings glory to God. In this portion of Scripture, we see God's determination to punish the people of Judah. And the outline for today is very simple. Punishment must come. Pity will not. But God's purposes do. Punishment must come, pity will not, but God's purposes do. Yahweh's punishment must come, verses 1 through 4. Yahweh's pity will not come, verses 5 through 9. And Yahweh's purposes do come in verses 10 through 21. So let's look at that very first point. Yahweh's punishment must come in verses 1 through 4. Yahweh is adamant in refusing to avert punishment. It must come. And though the prophet pleads back in 14, verse 21, remember and do not break your covenant with us, Yahweh provides one final answer to Jeremiah in these verses. Look at verse 1. Then Yahweh said to me, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my soul would not be with his people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me. You see, Jeremiah is not alone. 
There have been others who have interceded for God's people. Moses, for example, pleaded for rebellious Israel on several occasions in Exodus 32, Numbers 14, and Deuteronomy 9. Back in Exodus 32, verse 12, Moses pleads, Moses entreats Yahweh, turn from your burning anger and relent concerning doing harm to your people. And then we read in verses 14 and verse 14, just a couple of verses later, so Yahweh relented concerning the harm which he said he would do to his people. Not only Moses, but Samuel. Samuel pleaded with God for Israel as well in 1 Samuel 7 and in chapter 12 as well. So we read in 1 Samuel 7 verse 9, Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel and Yahweh answered him. Later, Samuel would say to the people, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh by ceasing to do what? To pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and upright way. 1 Samuel 12, verse 23. You see, from Samuel's vantage point, failing to pray or failing to teach God's people would be a sin against Yahweh. But even if heavy hitters like Moses and Samuel were to stand before the Lord, we read Yahweh's final answer there in verse 1. My soul would not be with his people. What's more, send them away from my presence and let them go. Let that sit for a moment. This is expulsion. This is a forcible removal in the same way that Adam was driven out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.24. I mean, what a horrible thought to think that you would reach a point where there would be no room for forgiveness, no more room for mercy with the Lord. What a horrible thought to think that you would be beyond the power of prayer. It is no wonder that David prayed, do not cast me away from your presence. Psalm 51, verse 11. I mean, that would be the worst, to be cast away, to be sent away. But there's more. Look down at verse 2, where Yahweh declares his resolve. And it will be that when they say to you, where should we go? Then you are to tell them, thus says Yahweh, those destined for death to death, those destined for the sword to the sword, those destined for famine to famine, those destined for captivity to captivity. The answer seems pretty harsh and unrelenting, as if God no longer cares for what happens to them. But that's at first blush. But if you take a closer look at it, there seems to be a progression here from bad to worse. In other words, there's a fate worse than death. Death would be the least harsh, while captivity would be the worst. Now, most of us would say, I don't want any of them. I don't like any of them. But if you lived in those days, death would be more welcome than to have to deal with famine or captivity. But wait, there's more. In gruesome detail, Yahweh appoints four kinds of doom for his people. In verse 3, I will appoint over them 
four kinds of doom, declares Yahweh. The sword to kill, the dogs to drag off, and the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the earth to devour and bring to ruin. The verb that is used here is what makes us chilling. I will appoint. In Hebrew, it means in a military sense to, to summon, to summon. Later, we'll read in Jeremiah 51, verse 27, that Yahweh will summon the troops of Ararat, Mini, Ashkenaz, in the north against Babylon for destroying Jerusalem in 586. Though Babylon had been God's instrument, he would nevertheless punish Babylon for their evil. And in the same way, Yahweh will summon four kinds of doom on Judah. Remember, the main theme of Jeremiah is judgment upon Judah. That's exactly what you read from chapter 2 on through chapter 29. But look down at verse 3 once again. The sword to kill, the dogs to drag off, and the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the earth to devour and bring to ruin. Notice, sword, dogs, birds, beasts. Usually, these are subject to man's control. If you recall, man was to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis one twenty six. Man was intended by God to be the sovereign of the planet. He was literally instructed to bring it into bondage, subdue it. But instead, what we hear in this verse, things are turned on their head. God who rules over all creatures will employ his service dogs, his animals, his birds, as well as men to inflict his punishment upon Judah. The sword would kill you, the dogs would drag away the dead bodies, and the birds of the air and the wild animals would finish what was left. It really isn't a pretty picture, but your dead body would serve as food for the wild animals. If you recall, this was the very same message Jeremiah proclaimed at the gate of the house of Yahweh. When all of Judah would come to the temple for one of the festivals back in Jeremiah 7, verse 33, you can tell why Jeremiah wasn't a popular prophet with his message at a popular time. Verse 33, the dead bodies of chapter 7 of Jeremiah, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. And that's what he would proclaim. That's what he was told and commanded to proclaim there at the gate at the house of Yahweh. Now one might think, okay, this is gruesome, abhorrent to even think about. But wait, there's more. Yahweh provides a reason for all of this, a reason for all of it. We read this in verse 4. I will give them over to be an example of terror among all the kingdoms of the earth because... Of whom? Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Now, as you study scripture, you're asking yourself the question, what did Manasseh do in Jerusalem that all this judgment is coming upon the people of Judah? What did he do? 
That's a great question. Great question. You see, Manasseh became co-regent alongside his father, Hezekiah, back in 695 B.C. when Manasseh was just 12 years old. Hezekiah was a good king. In fact, we read in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, a commentary about Hezekiah. And that was this, that he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh. Hezekiah had reigned for by himself for 20 years and then nine years with his son, Manasseh. And though Hezekiah had groomed his son as a youth, as a youth to become king, sadly, Manasseh turned out to be the worst king in Judah's history. He reigned a total of 55 years from 695 to 642 BC. And this is what is said of Manasseh in 2 Kings 21 verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to the abomination of the nations whom Yahweh disposed before the sons of Israel. The very detestable practices of the surrounding nations Israel would reproduce under Manasseh's reign as king. In fact, I want you to see this for yourself. Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 21 for a moment. 2 Kings chapter 21. Verse 2, I read it to you. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. 2 Kings 21 verse 3. Indeed, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Stop right there. Offense number one. He reverts to worshipping idols in the same manner as the surrounding nations. Offense number two. He allows high places to flourish again. Offense number three. He reintroduces the worship of Baal and his consort, Asherah, and polytheism re-enters to society with royal approval. Offense number four. That's just verse three, by the way. He worships the host of heaven and serves them. You see, it was prohibited to worship the sun, moon, and stars, according to what we read in Deuteronomy 4.19. But let's read on. That's just four offenses. Now we read verse four. He built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. Verse 5, indeed, he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the courts of the house of Yahweh. What do we see in these two verses? Offense number 5. He builds altars to the gods in the temple of Yahweh, as his grandfather did back in 2 Kings 16, 10 through 16. Let's read on, verse 6. 2 Kings 21, verse 6. He even made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, and interpreted omens, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much that was evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. Two more offenses. Offenses number six. He practices child sacrifice as his grandfather did in 2 Kings 16.3. He undoes what his father does, And he goes back in doing the evil things that his grandfather did. Offense number seven, he consults mediums and spiritists, both in direct violation of the Mosaic law 
according to what we read in Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 18.9-13. And so, look down at verse 9, the latter part. Manasseh led them astray in order to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the sons of Israel. Things were pretty bad. Fifty-five years. Simply stated, Manasseh forsook David's example, thus breaking the Davidic covenant laid down for us in 2 Samuel 7. He defiled God's temple. He rejected the Mosaic covenant. He acts opposite to his father and scorns the example laid down by Moses, Joshua, David, and even Solomon. Now we might remember what Manasseh did in Jerusalem and why Yahweh speaks so harshly in his judgment against Judah because of Manasseh for what he did in Jerusalem. Just one man. Manasseh sets in motion a judgment so severe that nations are horrified at what they see take place before them. Jeremiah 18.16 tells us everyone who passes by it will be horrified and shake his head in simply unbelief of what has taken place. Again, our simple outline, punishment must come, pity will not, but God's purposes do. Go back to Jeremiah 15, verse 5. Yahweh's pity will not come, verses 5 through 9. What appears to us in verse 5 are three rhetorical questions. Yahweh here is a speaker. Three rhetorical questions. Indeed, who will spare you, O Jerusalem? Or who will console you? Or who will turn aside to ask about your well-being? And the answer to all these is no one. No one. No one will spare you. That is to say, no one will pity you. No one will console you. That is to say, no one will show you sympathy. No one will turn aside to ask about your well-being, literally your shalom. And it's a sad day when no one asks how you're doing, especially when things are not doing well. Then comes the reason for a lack of pity and comfort and concern over Judah. In verse 6, You have abandoned me, declares Yahweh. You keep going, what? Backward. So I will stretch out my hand against you and bring you to ruin. I am tired of relenting. The people have committed a grievous crime. They, f- they had forsook the Lord. To abandon is to give up something. The Hebrew states it so clearly. It was you who abandoned me. This is what Judah had done so consistently that Yahweh declares at the very end, I am tired of relenting. The verse speaks of being tired of something. In this case, tired of showing compassion to Judah. Now, this is said for us to understand. 
It is not that God is not compassionate. He himself declares his own character back in Exodus 34, 6. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. You see, there comes a point when Yahweh will not withhold his judgment. That's what mercy is. Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. Grace is God giving and granting something we don't deserve. There comes a point when Yahweh will not withhold back his judgment. He must act he will by no means leave judah unpunished he says it was you who abandoned the lord it was you who keeps going backward if you look back in jeremiah 7 verse 23 and 24 we read this but this is what i commanded them saying listen to my voice and i will be your god and you will be my people and you will walk in the entire way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Verse 24. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. So let me ask you, which way are you walking these days? Are you walking backwards or are you walking forwards? Are you going forward, following the Lord in obedience? Or are you going backward, regressing and walking away from the Lord? You know, just look at your life. Are you going forward? Or are you going backwards? Just listen to these words from the Apostle Paul as he writes to the more upright, moral, religious person in Romans chapter 2, 4 and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? To repentance. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart. That's what we just read in Jeremiah. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing of wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, every one of us, every one of us has experienced the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. Amen? Is this not so? Kindness is God's goodness and benevolence given to you. Every time you breathe in, that's God's kindness to you, let alone all that he does. Forbearance is God holding back his judgment. Patience is God voluntarily withholding his vengeance. Again, this brings God glory to punish evildoers. We are the evildoers. Our hearts are prone to wander, are they not? 
And God extends his kindness so that you and I would recognize our sin, number one, and two, that we would repent of our sin, acknowledge it, and then turn from it so that you and I would not keep on walking backwards. Listen to me, don't go that way. Don't walk backwards, go forward. Follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. He who wants to come after me must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Right? That's our calling. Consider the following. Before God destroyed the world in the flood, he waited 120 years for men to repent while Noah was building the ark and calling men to repentance through his preaching of righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And in our present context of Jeremiah, God displayed his kindness through the many, many, many warnings given to Israel despite her continued rebellion, and the Lord waited some 800 years before sending his people into captivity. 800 years. Be warned, my beloved. Just know that if you continue in your stubbornness and unrepentant evil heart, you are simply storing up wrath for yourself. Punishment must come. Pity will not. Judah had reached a point where there was no more room for mercy. So Yahweh declares, go back to Jeremiah 15, verse 6. So I will stretch out my hand against you and bring you to ruin. I will stretch out my hand against you. You remember this. God used his strong hand to save his people out of Egypt, right? Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. Now he will extend that same hand to destroy, to bring them to ruin. His judgment would come. Instead of saving his people, he would bring judgment upon his people. Listen to the remaining verses in this section, verses 7 through 9. And I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will make my people perish. They did not repent of their ways. Their widows will be more numerous before me than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of a choice man, a destroyer at noonday. I will suddenly bring down on her anguish and terror. She who bore seven sons languishes. Her breathing is labored. Her son has set while it was yet day. She has been shamed and humiliated. So I will give over their survivors to the sword before their enemies, declares Yahweh. This is a prophecy of what God has determined to do. I will make my people perish. And he would do so through the Babylonians. In verse 7, we read, At the gates of the land. A gate is the outlet of a city, or here, the land. God will winnow the people into the outlet of the land. That is to say, he will cast them out of the land. As a farmer winnows the wheat to remove the shafts, so the Lord will disperse the people from the land. The idea is that of dispersion and exile. 
In verse 8, we read concerning the widows. Judah's widows will be more numerous than the sand of the seas. Instead of protecting the widows, he will make widows. War has claimed the lives of choice men. These are young men of mature age, but unmarried, who were chosen to serve in the military. And at noonday, just when it was not expected, a destroyer, a destroyer from the north, that is Babylon, comes and leaves the mother of a young man shaking with grief. There is no need to seek the protection of the dawn, of the twilight, or of the night. Noonday also shows the weakness and the unpreparedness of Judah. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. In verse 9, you have the description of a mother who has born seven children. It could literally be seven, or it could be conveying the idea of completeness or fullness. Seven children. Some of you are laughing and get it. I have a smiley face right here. I couldn't help myself. There's a smiley face right here. When I pass this manuscript on to you, you'll see that smiley face. It will not be edited. Ruth was said to be better than seven sons. We heard that when we read through Ruth 4.15. Not only was Ruth a blessing, but so was the mother of seven sons. But such a blessed life would come to a halt upon the death of all seven sons. While it was yet day, well before they reached the full strength of manhood, Not only that, but any remaining men of Judah would perish by the sword at the hand of their enemies. All of this is a grim picture of what awaited Judah, all because they did not repent of their ways. Verse 7, punishment must come, pity will not. Praise the Lord that his purpose is due. And that's exactly what we read in verses 10 through 21. Yahweh's purposes do come in these verses. The text then turns to the faithful prophet, Jeremiah. You need to consider this preacher. Jeremiah was a prophet with a broken heart, a loving heart. He loved the people. That's why he has such a broken heart. For the people of God. Earlier we read in chapter 8, verse 18 and verse 21, my sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Verse 21 of chapter 8, for the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Desolation has taken hold of me. It would be for you if you had such a love for your people. He was broken and mournful because of the wickedness of his people, because of their refusal to turn to the Lord, and because of the punishment that he had to prophesy against. You too would be considered the weeping prophet as well. In verse 10, you have a minister's complaint. Let's talk about pastors and preachers and ministers for a moment. Verse 10, a minister's complaint. Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. 
I have not lent nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. Here the prophet is overcome by grief, so discouraged that he wished that his mother had not given birth to him. So close was he to renouncing his prophetic ministry that here we find Jeremiah denouncing his birth. Later he writes in chapter 20, verse 14, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. And back in chapter 15, verse 10, he addresses his mom here in this verse. But by the end of the verse, he directs his complaint to Yahweh. Everyone curses me. Everyone curses me. You see, it is possible for the borrower or the lender to enter into disputes. It's possible. When there's money involved, disputes are a possibility. And thus create bitter feelings. But the prophet is neither. Neither a borrower or a lender. In fact, when the psalmist asks in Psalm 15, verse 1, Who may dwell on your holy mountain? Who is fit to worship God, to draw near to him and worship the one true God? He later defines that person as one who does not put out his money at interest. You're going to charge your brother with interest? Really? And then you're going to go worship God? Really? Jeremiah, financially speaking, was self-sufficient. He paid his bills on time. He paid his taxes. Sorry, I had to bring it up. He had no need of borrowing money from anyone. Nevertheless, everyone curses me. And Jeremiah felt the sting. That sting when you know you're just not loved. You're hated. You see, my beloved, it is possible. It is possible. Believe me when I say this. It is possible to be above reproach, but not be loved by the people you minister to. It's possible. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15, So I will most gladly spend and be fully spent for your souls, he says. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? I mean, Paul loved them to the max. Yet the more affection he gave to them, the less they returned it. Sometimes a congregation is unwilling to love you in return. Sometimes that's the case. That's not the case here. Praise God. You guys love in an amazing way. And I believe it's because you guys have been taught so well. You know, it's really sad to any minister. But it doesn't deter the mission you are to love people sacrificially. That's the nature of love, right? We don't love because of what we get in return. We love independently, even if they hate you. So what's the master's answer? 
verses 11 through 14. Yahweh answers the prophet's complaint. Oh, and he does complain. And he has more to say about the people of Judah. Look at verse 11. Yahweh said, surely I will set you free. You have to listen to this. Surely I will set you free for purposes of good. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in a time of disaster, in a time of distress. I love this. Whatever hard provinces God has ordained for his servant, every minister needs to hear these words from the Lord. Surely I will set you free for purposes of good. God's deliverance does come, and it comes for a good purpose. That's the way that God does things. He does things to establish his good. Right? Romans 8.28. You need to believe that. Hold on to that. And especially when you go through hard times, you're going to gravitate towards that verse. See, nothing is lost. All is for God's divine purpose for tov, for good. Early in Jeremiah's call to ministry, he was told in Jeremiah 1, verse 19, at the very get-go, and they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. He tells them right up front, it's going to be a hard journey for you, but I'm going to be with you. That changes everything. Being obedient to Yahweh does not exempt you and me from strife and opposition, you see. You may feel the sting, but Yahweh says, I am with you to deliver you. Yahweh continues, verse 11, Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in a time of disaster, in a time of distress. His opposition would one day ask Jeremiah, please, Jeremiah, to intercede on their behalf in a time of disaster, in a time of distress. And that's exactly what happens in Jeremiah 21, verses 1 and 2. Please inquire of Yahweh on our behalf, they said, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. This is exactly what's going to happen. And it does. Then this interesting rhetorical question then comes to us again in verse 12. Can anyone smash iron, iron from the north, or bronze for that matter? The first iron is stubborn Judah. Jeremiah 6.28, all of them are rebelliously stubborn. They are bronze and iron. Jeremiah 6.28, iron from the north, guess whose that is? That's Babylon. And bronze, guess who that is? Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.18, Now behold, I have given you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land. It is as if to say, can iron-clad enemies break an even stronger iron Babylon and bronze Jeremiah? And the answer is, of course not. And Jeremiah is there, left to answer that question. And all the answer from Yahweh is an affirmation for the prophet to hear. But next, Yahweh turns back to the topic of Judah, in verses 13 through 14. Bless you. 
Your wealth and your treasures I will give for plunder without cost, even for all your sins and within all your borders. Then I will cause your enemies to pass it over into a land you do not know, for a fire has been kindled in my anger. It will burn upon you. It's exactly what happens. Israel's wealth will be given away by Yahweh. He says, I will do this. I will. And that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar took away the treasures from Jerusalem. 2 Kings 24, verse 13. Judah will not be compensated for her loss without cost. The real cost, really, is for all your sins. In addition, Judah would be sent away into exile, into Babylon, a land you do not know. Let's go back to the minister. Going back between the master and the minister. What about a minister's confession? That's exactly what we read in verses 15 through 18. This is an intense confession from the prophet. The tone is entirely different. What was once a complaint back in, uh, in verse 10, a complaint that the Lord stops mid-sentence, now is a confession of faith and a plea. It kind of reminds me of the father who brought his only child to Jesus, who was demon-possessed in Mark 9, 14 through 28. Jesus tells the father, all things are possible to him who believes. Verse 23, to which the father replies, I do believe. Help my what? My unbelief. Intertwined with faith was mixed a bit of doubt. And this father acknowledged it. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Well, Jeremiah is no father, but you see here in this passage, in this section, both belief and doubt, even in this confession. Scripture is honest. Notice how he begins. You who know. You who know. Jeremiah begins by calling attention to Yahweh's incomparable knowledge. You who know all things, I make this plea. Remember me and take vengeance. Not for Jeremiah's sake. For your sake, I endure reproach. The reproach is coming to him because of hard truths that Jeremiah has been called to give to the people. And yet, in the midst of it, the prophet finds joy and gladness despite his circumstances. And what brings that joy and gladness? You're probably familiar with this verse. Look at verse 16. If you do not have it underlined, highlighted, do everything you remember, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me joy and gladness in my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Yahweh God of hosts. This is exactly where every minister goes back to when circumstances are difficult. He goes back to his calling as a minister to the very words Yahweh has given him. You always go back to the word of God, you see, where you find joy and gladness. Always go back to the word of God. For the prophet, we read in Jeremiah 1.9, Yahweh sent forth his hand and touched my mouth, and Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And these words he has spoken to the people of Judah in a season when it was not popular, at a time when it was not well received. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so Jeremiah's love for God, Jeremiah's love for his word caused him to be separate from evil men. And that's exactly what he testifies to in verse 17. I did not sit in the circle of merry makers, nor did I exult. For you filled me with indignation. But then this is where Jeremiah's doubt comes into play. Verse 18. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable? Refusing to be healed. Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? Jeremiah is very gutsy to say these words to Yahweh. I mean, it's always on shaky ground when you start asking, why? Why? His pain seemed to be unending, and God seemed to be like a deceptive stream, a stream that, is, that goes dry in a summer and really can't be depended on for water. But is God like that? God is reliable. And those are the truths that you need to preach to your own heart. Those are the truths that you read of when you go back to God's word. Those are the truths that you find joy and gladness in your heart to read. God is reliable. He can be trusted. He is the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 2.13 Master, minister, now back to master. A master's assurance. What is the master's assurance? Verse 19, Therefore thus says Yahweh, If you return, then I will cause you to return. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my mouthpiece. They, for their part, may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. And they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares Yahweh. So I will deliver you from the hand of the evil ones, and I will redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless ones. My beloved, praise be to Yahweh that his purposes can be trusted. At times when we are in the midst of trouble, while we may even feel the sting of the curse of men, we too may forget his promises and doubt whether he will come through as Jeremiah did. Nevertheless, know and believe, my beloved, that nothing can thwart the purposes of God. Even when the disciples saw the Lord Christ before his ascension, there were some there that doubted. Such is the transparency of Scripture. Some doubted there. Some complained, as Jeremiah did, and some walked backwards as those in Judah, while others walked forward. But we read this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So my beloved, let us walk forward in obedience. Whatever lies before us, let us commit this day to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age as we look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for we have heard from your word today. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that we would not be a stubborn people. That if there is any wicked way in us, that you would make our path straight, that you would help us acknowledge our sin, that you would cause us to repent, that we may walk forward and not backward. Cause your people to be faithful. Whatever lies ahead, Lord, thank you for the great promise that you are with us. Be with us as always. May we live lives for you and not for ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.